Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great interview for you today, so let's jump right on in. My guest today is Scott Gallant, who is a resident farm manager at Rancho Mastatal, which is a permaculture and natural building design and teaching site in Costa Rica. Now, Scott grew up in a little town in Ohio, just outside of Cincinnati, spending most of his childhood playing in the neighborhood farmland. He later went to a small liberal arts school in Indiana called Wabash College, where he studied economics and rhetoric. After that, he was on track to get a job in finances, but instead took a detour when he decided to take some time off and head out west to work for a conservation crew. There he met his partner, Laura, and she convinced him to hitchhike through Mexico with her to learn Spanish. Long story short, he says, we ended up at Rancho Mastatal in Costa Rica, where he soon began running the farm, teaching permaculture, and eventually doing consulting work. Since then, Scott has been featured on Permaculture Voices with Diego Footer, on a recent USDA Inside Agroforestry Beginning Farmers newsletter, and has written many articles for the Permaculture Research Institute. Now in this episode, Scott talks in detail about his role managing the farm on one of the premier regenerative living sites in the world, and the journey that got him to that point. He also gives advice to beginners who might be looking to get involved in land management and regenerative projects themselves. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast, where I'll offer a last chance opportunity to claim the last spot in our June Intro to Natural Building course that will teach you everything you need to know to get started building for yourself with natural materials. And now I'll turn things over to Scott. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here. So you say you're currently in, in Costa Rica, but not on the ranch. That's correct. I am in northern part of the country in Monteverde, which is uh, famous for the cloud forests and a big um, national park and private reserve area. Oh, nice. I've seen pictures of that place. It must be gorgeous there right now. It is, it's pretty stunning. Yeah, it's very wet too. <laughs> yes. Well, it is here too where I am in Guatemala as the rainy season starts. But hey, let's jump right into the first question. I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover with you. Excellent. All right. So now, Scott, I know you had a fairly typical North American upbringing and education. You even said you were all set to go into a career in finance after university, but instead you took a detour. Tell me the story behind why you decided to make that change and how that resulted in getting to where you are now. Yeah, so I was studying economics and at a, a small school in the Midwest and really didn't know any other alternatives. It was That was pretty much like what you did. You went to college and then you'd go get a job. Um, I'd never heard of someone doing the Peace Corps or going and backpacking around Central America. There was Those were very foreign things. Like I literally didn't know a single person from my high school who you know, did something alternative like that. And um, throughout college, just kind of knew I was looking for something a little bit different, but just didn't have like a role model or a mentor to, to see what that might be. Um, and got lucky enough to find just kind of an odd job on the internet of going and doing trail crew out in Colorado. And I, I was interested in going out West and kind of escaping the Midwest. Um, and I 
got a, a really good job offer as a project manager for a company in Madison, Wisconsin, right out of school. And I put it on hold to go do Conservation Corps um, in Durango. No kidding. Which Conservation I, Corps was it? Uh, Southwest Conservation Corps. Yeah, I worked for them for three seasons. No, actually four. Excellent. Thanks. We, I, I think we know a lot of the similar people. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how many people of similar mindsets and ambitions kind of run through those same, uh, yeah, different jobs and circles. That's really cool. Yeah. And so that was like, that became um, a reintroduction of nature for myself. I was like a really nature-oriented kid, but kind of lost that in middle school and high school, just playing sports and, uh, you know, doing all the typical you know, things that you do in high school. And so being out west and just like camping in the back country really became convinced that I was not going to be happy taking a corporate job, sitting at a desk. And I was very fortunate and very fortunate. I'm a white dude from the United States of America. I didn't have any college debt. Um, my parents are supportive. And I just realized that I could do anything I wanted. And I um, ended up reading a book called Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. And he kind of founded this idea of a nature deficit disorder as a, a psychological syndrome. And I remember reading that and it really struck home that I was for me and kind of brought me on this path of education a little bit, um, reskilling and, and connecting with nature on a deeper level. And at the end of that three month period, um, yeah, to make a long story short, basically had a bunch of different options, one of which was taking a corporate job. Um, another was continuing with the Conservation Corps. And the third option, um, I had met uh, my current partner, Laura, and she is was and is very adventurous. And um, she asked me to come hitchhiking through Mexico with her to learn Spanish. And I decided to do that. <laughs> and so that that really triggered it all um, and, and haven't looked back since. Fantastic. Now, I know many people, including myself, who've taken permaculture design courses and have had it transform their lives and how they interact with their environments. How did you go from taking the course of permaculture by the time you made it down? I assume you took this in Mastatal? I did, yeah. How did you go from that course all the way to managing a whole farm in the tropics? Yeah, so I, I kind of took it from a different way. I basically started managing the farm first. Um, and didn't really think about it from a permaculture perspective. I, I was more tuned in with the agroforestry community. Um, that was the language that I was using, um, the resources that I was studying. And then um, our main permaculture instructor, uh, Chris Shanks, who runs a project called Project Bonafide in Nicaragua, he approached me about starting to co-teach with him, taking over the course, and I decided that I should probably take the class if I was going to do that. Um, so I took the class, um, really just shoot, maybe four years ago now. And so I already had about three years of managing the farm at the ranch with other people, of course, um, before kind of adopting the language of permaculture and some of the tools, which for me really became design as a tool that I hadn't thought about prior, uh, that, that became the main like addition to my tool belt after that class. Nice. Now, for those of us who haven't visited Mastatal already, can you describe the farm and some of the most important enterprises and productions and how it's continuing to grow and mature? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Rancho Mastatal is located in 
really tiny town of about 100, 120 people in rural Costa Rica. Um, it was founded in 2001 by Robin Nunez and Tim O'Hara, um, a couple from upstate New York. And it is an education center for first and foremost. Um, so we're, we're organized basically as an LLC. We're just a small business, which is unusual for an education center. Um, usually that, uh, those enterprises run more in the nonprofit sector. Um, but we generate all of our own income and livelihoods through the classes that we offer, through um, hosting groups, whether that's like university or college groups, high school groups, um, coming down to study everything from tropical ecology to permaculture, natural building, et cetera. And that, that's kind of the bread and butter of what we do. Um, we have an apprenticeship program um, that lasts for a year. It's a highly competitive program. Um, we receive guests and Everything that we do there with all the people coming through, and there's quite a bit, is based around kind of growing our campus. Um, and so almost everyone that comes through is going to participate in some aspect, whether that's processing food for our kitchen, um, going out into the farm and um, planting or coppicing trees or harvesting or working on a new wall system for the new bunkhouse, which has been the case this year. It's been a lot of hands um, building the waddle and dob walls. And so it's very didactic. Uh, it's, it's really designed for people to get involved and kind of get just a taste for short-term people or for the apprentices, like really build hard skills in, um, you know, all these different domains that kind of float around the, the concept of permaculture design. Fantastic. And so it sounds like you do quite a few experimental things with the grounds there and what you sort of practice and try out within the realm of permaculture. Can you give me some examples of those experiments? Yeah, it's a great question. So in my realm, which is really managing the agroforestry systems, um, the one of our goals there is to be a place in our region that can trial new crops and practice trial new techniques. Because most of our neighbors don't have that luxury. They don't have the ability to devote new land to some obscure nut tree um, or the time to, you know, dig swales, for example. And so we're interested in seeing how those techniques work, how those different crops work. Um, we expect we're going to fail a lot. Um, I expect that many of the trees I plant will end up being either mediocre for our climate or being very difficult to process for our kitchen. Um, and so everything we do comes a little bit from that perspective. Um, we want to be the risk takers, basically. Um, and so a good example is we're trialing a lot of different um, underutilized nut trees. Um, so we have things like Peely nut, Tahitian chestnut, Okari nut, Malabar chestnut uh, is a fairly extensive list. Um, and these are nuts that from their places of origin are staple crops. You can go to the market in the Philippines and, and there's baskets of Peely nut. It's a delicious nut similar to macadamia. Um, but here in Costa Rica, it is unknown. Most of the tropics, it's unknown. And so we're interested in finding out, is that something that grows well where we are? Are we able to process it from a culinary perspective? Can it fit into existing food cultures? And if so, if, if those three things are, are met, then we think we can potentially replace maybe a more destructive agricultural practice such as um, the annual monocropping of, of beans, for example, if we just look at a protein-to-protein -protein replacement. 
can we replace that with something like peeling nut? Um, that's like a tough question to answer. I really view that as like a multi-generational problem um, that has like a lot of cultural implications. But I think what we're doing is, is with many other people in the region and in Costa Rica and of course around the world are starting those experiments, starting those trials to see what, you know, what a, a new agriculture will look like really. That's really interesting. Have you ever worried about some of the plants or the species that you're importing into your area becoming invasive? And if so, how do you make sure that that's a risk that's minimized? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's not something that I spend a lot of time worrying about, mostly because we're not importing any plants. Um, so those peeling nuts, for example, I'm getting seeds from uh, botanical gardens in the country already. Um, most domesticated plants have had the kind of the wildness bred out of them. Um, there's definitely exceptions to that. And we have plants on our property that have high invasive potential. Um, usually they're ornamentals in the tropics is, is my experience. Um, for me, it just comes down to due diligence. Um, you should do your research. It should be pretty easy to figure out if you plant something, is it, can it spread real easily? Um, a lot of that information is out there. Um, but it's not, for us, pretty much everything we're working with, there's some other people working with it in Costa Rica. And so I don't, I don't stress out about it too much. Well, those are some good precautions to take. Now, in all these experiments Absolutely. that you've seen the results of over successive years, are there any that you're really excited about or have already sort of taken hold either in the surrounding communities or show a lot of potential for larger either scaling or implementation? Yeah, I think that more than anything is just a shift toward um, a perennial-based agriculture. And so where we are, um, there's probably now... In our small town, there's three other kind of ecotourism projects that are all starting to work with trees and looking at different species that, that no one would have considered before. Um, things like jackfruit have a real potential to like shape the food systems in our area. And so some species are coming out. Um, there's an increasing look at uh, turmeric in particular as an economic crop. And I can think of two or three farms in our area that are starting to grow turmeric um, to either export out of Costa Rica to different markets or they're processing it um, as a medicinal prod product and selling it in country. Um, so some species are trickling in there. Um, certain techniques are there's a grass that we work with that's really common in the tropics called vetiver grass. Um, anyone from that climate will likely be familiar with it. Um, there's, there's many thousands of plants in Mostatal, but they all really started with literally one plug um, that Tim and Robin brought in years ago on a trip to a different farm um, you know, on the other side of the country, perhaps. And that one plug is spread to a number of farms in the area and people really recognize the benefits of that plant and the erosion control um, functions that it has. And so there's a lot of little things like that. Um, but like I said, it, it really feels like a slow process. Um, and I think that's okay. 
um, with the cultural barriers and, and the reality of working with some of these species that I'm very hesitant to recommend something until I, I feel really confident that, that it's going to produce well and that it fits. And, and with some of these trees, like nut trees, I mean, that's, you know, maybe that's a 15 year timeline before I can say that with confidence. And, um, so that's, that's a perspective that I try to keep constantly. Yeah, it's really important. I'm glad that there are, there are people like you out there taking those precautions and doing the research so that we can help to advance, you know, the, the knowledge of different climactic conditions and all these different experiments that you mentioned all the faster. Right, right. Now, I know where you're at in Rancho Mastatal, being located in Costa Rica. Your farm is mm -hmm. deep in the tropical rainforest. Can you tell me about some of the many benefits and challenges that you face in that climate and some of the ways that you've developed to work with them? Yeah. So we're in a cool environment. We're, we're in a transition zone between the dry tropical forests of uh, northern Costa Rica, um, kind of the Guanacaste area, and then the wet, like true monsoon rainforests of southern Costa Rica. And then we're also in a transition zone from uh, the coast into the interior highlands. And so the national park that borders our property is actually has the greatest diversity of trees in the country, which becomes this great advantage for us in that we can draw from a lot of different climates in the type of tree crops that we work with. Um, so that becomes a, a really beautiful advantage for us um, and, and a fun thing to play with. We have this huge diversity of species. And if we start looking at climate and ecological analogs from around the globe, there's a lot to play with. There's a lot to trial. Um, and you, you quickly find out that there's yeah, things that they grow in Papua New Guinea that people there eat and they're a great part of the diet and they're plants that are, you know, fit well with that climate that fit well with our climate as well. Um, and so that's, that's one of the big advantages of working in the humid tropics. Um, the challenges where we're at are, you know, there's the obvious challenges of like a huge amount of rain. We get probably around four meters of rain a year, maybe a little bit more. Um, tropical soils are, are typically pretty poor in quality. So those are kind of obvious challenges, but where we are, let's say the biggest challenge is access. We're a, a two hour bus ride from the nearest town. There's one bus in and out. Um, so just getting people in for workshops can be a challenge. Um, if, if our goal was to produce for market, which is what people you know historically did in the region, it can be a real chore. That road can be out in the rainy season um, for a week at a time or more with uh, the heavy rains and the landslides that can occur. And so that, you know, is like a physical access limitation. And then it also becomes psychological. Uh, just being really isolated in rural community has great benefits. And it, it's something that I wouldn't trade for a busy city any day. Um, but it becomes challenging to share information, share plants, um, and that communication can, uh, know, can feel like it can slow down your progress when you know there's other people out there that would be able, you'd be able to leverage their experience a bit more if you had the ability to connect a little easier. So that, yeah. that to me is a challenge that I see on sites all around the tropics and, um, you know, probably everywhere in rural communities, um, but feels very pronounced where we are. Sure, no doubt. Where I'm at in Guatemala, we have quite a few of those as well. Fortunately, we're not quite as isolated. I can get to a larger town 
in about an hour, but it's a boat ride because there's no <laughs> road that connects us to it. There, yeah, it's a, it's a different type of isolation. It is, yeah. Fortunately, yeah. because of the tourist industry around here, their boats run fairly regularly and it's not nearly as cut off. But I definitely know some of the things you're talking about, including the climate, because uh, though we're up higher in the mountains right now, uh, we yeah. get the, the rains like you're talking about. And our soil also is often pretty poor, not just inherently, but because it's been degraded by mm-hmm. poor farming practices for quite a few generations. And seems we're in the mountains anyway, it's extremely rocky. And in order to clear a place for planting or for cultivation, it takes a lot of man hours. And most of these sites are inaccessible by machinery. Yeah either with the, the grades or the fact that there are just no roads to a lot of places. So, yeah, I definitely yeah. know the challenges you're talking about. Well, we don't have any rocks, so that, that part is at least good where we are. <laughs> it's very easy to dig. That's good for the land, but I tell you what, it's a huge resource for me doing natural building around here. The rocks are Yeah, fantastic. it is. Great for foundations. Absolutely. We <laughs> yeah. can cut so much of our cement cost down by just using the rocks that are a constant pain to dig <laughs> out of the soil. We just get to reuse them right away on site. Now, Scott, I know that many of my listeners are passionate about permaculture and regenerative agriculture, but that many of them also don't have their own land and that are always looking to get involved in projects like yours and really live the permaculture lifestyle. What advice Mm -hmm. would you give to those people? How how would, would you recommend that they start to get more involved? Yeah, I mean, I would start close to home and I would see what people are doing there. Um, it seems like everywhere in the world now, there, there's some sort of permaculture activity. Um, so starting there is, you know, what's, what's the local permaculture guild? Are there farmers that are practicing? And, and you might find that you have to get away from the language of permaculture. Um, you might, you know, hop into an organic farm or people practicing ag forestry or agroecology um, that might be a little bit turned off by the language of permaculture. Um, that that also might be a good way in. Um, and then looking at more of the volunteer internship apprentice opportunities, which uh, I think there's a lot out there. I'd encourage people to once again, do your due diligence. I think there's a lot of really good programs. Um, and then there's probably some that are, are, are mediocre, um, some that are very young, some that are, there's a lot of experience with uh, the instructors. And trying to find a program that fits well with you, you know, our program is awesome. It, it, I think it's one of the best out there. But if you're looking to learn Spanish while practicing permaculture, we're not the place for that. We speak a lot of English, for better or worse. If you're, you know, looking for a place that also does a lot of healing work and is more spiritual, that's great. There's a lot of places that do that. We don't do that. It, it's just not part of our culture there. Again, uh, and so finding a spot that fits your style, your personality really well, um, I think is one of the most important things. On a practical level, I would ask um, if you can speak with past volunteer interns about their experience. If someone's willing to give you some of that contact information, that's usually a really good sign um, that they either want you to be a good fit or they, um, 
yeah, that that they're they're looking out for both parties' best interests, which is really, really important. I like that. That's really good advice. There's so many people who have experience either in the place that you're looking specifically or in doing something that you might be interested in. Reach out to those people. They have fantastic advice. They have great stories from their experiences, and it tends to be somewhat of an untapped resource. Yeah. And honestly, once you start like plugging away in a community, um, I guess this is the other piece of advice. Like, there's the whole like travel around and volunteer on Wolf Farm side of this. But my my experience is, if you can settle in a place and find a place that fits you, whether it, you know you're going to be there for for the rest of your life or not, once you start building roots in a place, all the opportunities in the world just keep popping up. Um, once you show that you have a work ethic and people start knowing who you are personally and they realize they enjoy working with you, like that little that little bit spreads and the opportunities come out of the woodwork. So taking the time to kind of delve into a place, settle, put down roots, even for a whole year, um, which isn't that long of a period of time, but you've, you'll find just after a couple months that if those opportunities really come out. Um, and so that's the other piece of advice. Like, don't be afraid to settle for a bit in one place. And um, again, whether it's the place you're going to live the rest of your life or not, put the roots down and take advantage of the opportunities that come with that commitment. I really agree with that. Yeah. I've, so I've been traveling for almost 11 years, not including <laughs> the time that I'm in, <laughs> I've been spending here in Guatemala. And yeah. definitely in the beginning, I bounced around a ton and there was an advantage to that. I got to see a lot of things, but I got to see a lot of things superficially. And once I sort of changed my mindset and my goals of what I wanted to do, I would stay in another spot for, you know, a couple of months at a time, usually at a minimum. And especially if you're pursuing something like permaculture or regenerative landscaping or farming, you're not going to be able to see the results of your work in a couple of weeks. Some people don't even stay that long. And so seeing the results of your work through a couple of seasons is really the best way to get a feel of what your actions on the site are going to result in and how it interacts with the rest of the ecology in, in which you're working. Yep. I agree completely. And, and that's, that can be hard for people um, to make that commitment. And it can be hard to find a place um, if it's not your own, where you jive with the energy there. But that, that is a good goal to have. Um, I, I'd encourage people to strive for that and, and be ready to, to say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here for a bit. I'm going to see what this looks like over 12 months and, and commit to that you know, through thick and thin. Absolutely. So now I know also that Masatal, like you sort of touched on briefly earlier, Masatal has a ton of educational opportunities as well as apprenticeships and much more. How can people find out more about all of these and get in touch with you and the ranch? Yeah, so we have a, a great website. It's just ranchomastatal.com. Um, and from there, you can navigate to all the different opportunities. Um, we're starting to accept apprentices for our 2018 program. I think I actually think most of the slots have been filled, um, which is great. And uh, you can see our calendar that we're starting to populate uh, for the kind of the dry season, the busy season of 2018. Um, and there's all sorts of links there to other projects in Costa Rica um, that you can connect with. 
Um, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're pretty active on social media. We try to use those as platforms just to share kind of what daily life is like on a, on a place like ours and um, little educational tips and tricks, I guess. Um, so yeah, ranchamasatal.com. Fantastic. So now aside from the ranch and all of its offerings, how can people contact you and find out more about, uh, well, you told me you just started a consultancy outfit called Porvenir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So website is in the works. Maybe it'll be done by the time this comes out. I'm not sure, but uh, porvenirdesign.com. Um, so it'll be Scott Gallant at porvenirdesign.com. Um, people can reach me at that. And yeah, partnering up with a couple other folks. Um, all been in similar situations where we've uh, been kind of putting in time at projects like the ranch and, and doing the, the on the ground work for um, you know five years, um, nearly a decade in, in my case, um, and started in the last few years putting ourselves out there as consultants uh, just independently and started realizing that uh, a number of us were um, yeah ready to take it a bit more serious, ready to open like an actual business. Um, and we're looking for other people who wanted to go full-time or closer to full-time in that work. And we're really interested in pushing that forward. And so, yeah, exciting and nervous. Uh, you know, <laughs> I putting remember yourself being in that there. position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great so, place been to doing be. it. Yeah, been doing design work for the last, uh, geez, I guess three years now. Um, but ready to, to take it to another level. Definitely. Well, good for you, Scott. And thank you for being so generous with your time. I got a ton out of what you shared through your experience and your advice. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure, pleasure Oliver. And uh, yeah, good luck in Guatemala. I have the feeling we're in very similar climates at the moment. Indeed. Yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch. Yeah. All right, man. Take care. Thank you. Bye. There you have it. Now, before we sign off for this week, I've got a new weekly tip. This week, I'm straight plagiarizing my good friend Shad Goodsey from Atitlan Organics, which is just up the hill from where I'm living here in Guatemala. Now, the reason why I'm repeating his advice is because I get a lot of people asking me, what are the first or most important steps that you can take when you're just starting a new landscape project? Now, many of us who've been around permaculture circles will have heard that you should always wait one year at least before you start taking any big action. Now the reason for this is that in that first year, you'll learn so much just by observing the land and listening to your ecosystem. You'll get to see how things shift and transform over different seasons, and by the end, you'll have a much more informed opinion about what to do and how to design your project. Here's the thing, I completely agree with that and so does Shad, but he gave me a list of three things, three actions, that you can take during that year of observation that won't make major lasting changes to the land, but will get you off to a much better and much faster start once you're ready to start implementing your design. Now I thought these three steps were so important that it was worth doing a full segment on them right here. Now the number one action that you can take is to make a nursery. Now this means starting all kinds of plants from seed and sapling that you can care for and that will mature over the year of observation. And not only will you gain valuable experience starting your own plants and trees, but most likely by the time you're ready to implement your design, most if not all of them will be able to be transplanted into the ground. 
You'll also save yourself tons of money by not having to buy mature plants from a store and then transport them to your site. Now the second thing is to bring in as much carbon material as you can onto your site. This means straw bales, piles of leaves, your neighbor's yard waste, uh, sawdust, mulch, wood chips, manure, whatever you can get your hands on and as much as you can store. All these carbon-rich organic fertilizers will kickstart both your soil building and water retention strategies immensely and can even get the mycelium networks in your soil booming as well. Now the third and last action is to plant a modest veggie garden. This shouldn't be a large undertaking like a market garden, but rather something that you could replicate easily if at the end of the year you decide that there's another place on your site that would be a better place for the garden. Much like with the nursery, you'll learn a ton from having the garden throughout the year and you'll reap the benefits as well in the form of healthy veggies and herbs to eat. This could even include small chicken coops or taking care of some small livestock like maybe a goat or two. Even if your garden is a complete failure, you'll undoubtedly learn a ton from it so that you'll make a better go of it the next time around. Now with these three actions, you'll be in the best possible position to jumpstart your land projects when you're ready. You'll have learned invaluable lessons and have built fertility and water holding capacity at the same time. So don't be daunted by the scale of possible decisions to make right when you get started. Focus on these three steps in the beginning and use the time in between to position yourself for success in the long run. If you'd like to hear the full explanation from Shad himself, you can find his podcast interview at episode number 5, either at AbundantEdge.com, under podcasts, or on iTunes. Now, for those of you who want to make a giant leap forward in your natural building education, I'm now offering natural building workshops that cover everything you need to know to get started on your own house in an intensive one-week experience. You'll get the chance to mix cob, make adobes, work with stones, natural plasters, and even try out bamboo joinery and much more. We'll go over design essentials and project planning, all while working on hands-on projects that benefit the indigenous Mayan population here in Guatemala. This is a really fantastic deal because your lodging and food are all included in the course tuition. And as always, there is limited space in these workshops, so sign up soon to guarantee your spot. Go to the website at AbundantEdge.com and click on the Education tab and Courses and Workshops to get all the information you need. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the Podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Now if you enjoyed this or any of our previous episodes, the best way that you can support me right now is to leave a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is the best way to ensure that I reach as many people as possible with the invaluable information that is shared by the guests that I've interviewed. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again on next week's episode.